0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, God's Rescue Plan, with a message titled, The Life of Faith. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 13, verses 11 to 22, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: God asks that His children trust Him, that is, We're not trusting in our good fortune in our excellent planning or the trends that are turning out in our favor we're trusting in god and more specifically in the promises he's made to us now there will be times when the life of faith looks like foolishness that's because external indicators tell us that we're acting like fools but faith trusts god we reason that when god has given a command that first he's faithful never promises something on which he doesn't deliver. And second, we reason that God is omnipotent. There's no lack of power that would prevent him from accomplishing everything he's promised. And so once God has promised, we act on that. I mean, consider Jesus' words, Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I hope you see the problem with those words. The problem is that we can't now see the advantages of the soul in eternity. And because we can't see it, a great many people have no faith. They can see the profit of gaining the whole world, or at least as much of the world as they can. That they can see. But eternity, well, because all they have is God's word for what awaits in eternity, they simply don't believe. But the Bible is a record of those who believed. Moses went to Egypt, one man with no power other than the promises of God, demanding that a very powerful Pharaoh should relinquish and let the people of Israel go. That's madness, foolishness, and a rash mistake that could have gotten him killed. Except this, God made promises. And if a man or woman takes God seriously, he or she will trust and make decisions in life that base everything that they do on the promises of God. Well now, We're coming to the end of our section in Exodus. Ten plagues have reigned on Egypt, and Pharaoh, Egypt, and her gods have been humiliated, pushed into a corner, and shown for what they are. If you fight God, you lose. Israel is about to leave Egypt, and there's one more thing that must be done. God is careful that in the future, no future generation should forget what was done now. They have already being told to observe the consecration of the firstborn, to keep the Passover, and to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, one more instruction remains before they're permitted to go. Exodus 13, 11 to 16. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean, you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Now, this command apparently only took effect once they arrived in Canaan it would seem that it was not practiced during the wilderness wanderings, but this command builds on the earlier commands that were to consecrate the firstborn. So if you've got a donkey, and it's the firstborn of its mother, you must sacrifice a lamb in its place. And if you don't want to do that, you've got to kill the donkey. But every other male animal, when it's the first male that's born is to be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. And that, of course, is a constant replaying of the death of the firstborn in Egypt. So it's done all the time. In the case of a firstborn son, Israel is to pay a redemption price. And that price was explained later in Numbers 18, 15 to 16. Let me read that. "...everything that opens the womb of all flesh, whether man or beast, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem, and the redemption price at a month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is twenty geras." Now, of course, this is not a study of numbers, but the laws in numbers are very interesting because those laws not only include the price that was to be paid for every male that was born, but it also includes the offering of the first fruit of the harvest. Everything that comes first belongs to God, for God spared everything that came first when that last plague was unleashed on Egypt. Down the road, that would be called the law of first fruits. And from the perspective of New Testament believers, Jesus, the firstborn of the father was sacrificed for us. And then in his resurrection from the dead, we're told that his resurrection is a first fruit. It is the first of a line of resurrections that will follow after him. But the practice of first fruit meant that the very first belongs to God from the time of the plague of the firstborn right to the present day. It was a part of the pattern of giving It was practiced by believers since the time of Moses, and that's expensive. I mean, you think about it. The firstborn of all your animals, that is, when you don't yet have the benefit financially from what that animal brings to you at the very first, you sacrifice the very first. And when your first son is born, when your family is still quite young, money's still hard to come by, God already takes his portion. And you might respond, that, that doesn't make sense. Why can't I give, you know, when everything is financially better off? Then I'm going to give. And God says, no, I want you to sacrificially give before you prosper. Indeed, if we go to Deuteronomy 26, when Israel first arrived in the land, they were to take from the very first harvest. And yet they had nothing from the land. And yet they were to bring the very first to the altar. See, there are two meetings here. One is that whenever they did, the memory of God sparing the firstborn was to be deeply embedded into every practice. And two, this kind of giving is based on faith. I know that for the person of no faith, this kind of action makes no sense at all. But for the person who trusts in God, offering the first, the best, that portion, before there's any other portion available, that's a statement of faith. It's saying, I believe that God who saved our firstborn will continue to save me. I believe that the God who delivered me from slavery will continue to care for me the rest of the days of my life. That's a lot to do with giving. You know, for Christians, our offering is not offered when we see what we have left. Rather, it's offered before we see what we've spent. It's offered in faith. For the person without faith, that's just nonsense. Indeed, for the cynical, it's foolish. All the church wants is your money, says the cynic. It's just a con job. But the person of faith knows that life that lacks generosity, that's a life of self-indulgence, not a life of sacrifice. It's the self-indulgent attitude that eventually destroys entire civilizations. And for those of us who believe, we remember that God himself gave his best. And so we also give our best to remember that God never abandons us. Now before we leave this section, notice again that Moses imagines that in the future a father's son is asking, Dad, why are you constantly redeeming the firstborn? And the father takes that as an opportunity once again to retell the story of Egypt. And the highlight comes when the Lord kills the firstborn of Egypt but saves the firstborn of Israel. And the father explains, Son, we can never forget that. Verse 16 is curious because it ends this section by saying, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Let me see if I can put that in contemporary terms. Moses is saying this practice of constantly offering the firstborn. It's like a tattoo marked on your hand. Now, I know the Israelites weren't permitted to have tattoos, but the image will do. When you see someone with a tattoo, it's a mark on their body. You never miss it. It's the same with the practice of giving. It's a mark of the person of God. See, I know that in our day, there are Christians who don't make first fruit giving their practice. They argue, look, it's just the Old Testament, as if the First Testament is just an outdated document. But the New Testament affirms the practice of giving. Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus is denouncing the Pharisees, saying that they tithe down to the dill and the mint in the common, but they've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then he said, these you ought to have done, that is, you ought to have tithe of the dill, the mint and the cumin, but you ought also to have done the greater thing. You see, first fruit giving, it reminds us of the great acts of God in our history. But it also reminds us that when we give sacrificially, that God is no man's debtor, God will sustain us in the end.
0: Would you like to receive all of the latest Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt, Bible teaching and encouragement resources directly to your inbox every Monday to Friday? Then be sure to sign up for the free daily audio mail. Every day you'll receive an email containing links to all the daily Bible teaching programs, newest blogs, and all the audio and video messages from Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again and In Doubt. Once you sign up, all the newest from Dr. John and Phil will be one click away. So to subscribe for audio mail, visit backtothebible.ca and at the bottom of the page, you'll find a simple sign-up form. Now all your favorite resources will be sent to you every weekday. Or if you prefer, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 and we'll make sure you receive the next Back to the Bible Canada audio mail.
1: As Israel was going to leave Egypt and go out to a desert, the words about the consecration of the firstborn were essential. They'd have to trust God. They'd have to live by faith. But now we come to the actual departure, and now the life of faith will kick into high gear. It's hard to know what the majority of the people leaving Egypt were expecting. They did know that they were going to a place where they would worship, and they did know they were going to the promised land. But I suspect the majority of them would have thought that the pathway forward would be easy. I mean, after all, had not their God defeated the gods of Egypt? And if Egypt was prosperous, was not Egypt's prosperity a result of their gods? That is, the sun god, the Nile god, the gods of fertility and harvest and riches. Wouldn't it then be natural to assume that Israel's God would give them far greater riches? Would a good and powerful God allow his people to undergo suffering? And we need to stop and consider that. I know a great many Christians today who assume the same thing. I mean, the reason why so many become angry with God when hardships come along, it's because they assume, rightly, that God could take all the hardships away. And yet, he doesn't. But again, we betray that it's hard to know how to live by faith. Faith doesn't fix our eyes on the present troubles. It fixes our eyes on the promises of God. Yeah, we may not know all the troubles that will overtake us, but we do know the one who holds our tomorrows in his loving hands. Back to our text, Exodus 1317 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. You know, the easiest pathway to the promised land was to go straight north, and you'd have been there very quickly. It's interesting to think about that, because we know that they didn't actually arrive in the promised land for another 40 years. But from what we know from Joshua's time, the Philistines, well, they were a very daunting fighting force. Many years after that, uh, they were still strong enough to even attack Egypt itself. And God knew that the shock of first seeing war for Israel would make a great many of them want to go back to Egypt. In this we see two matters. I mean, it's true that God could have brought the Philistines to their knees, even as he had brought Egypt to their knees. But in the future, Israel would be called upon to fight, and truth be known, the faith that was needed to fight was lacking. Now we who read this wonder how faith could possibly be lacking. I mean, weren't the 10 plagues of Egypt enough to convince them that if God is for them, who could be against them? Well, it's easy for us standing at a distance in time and place from them to be harsh with them. I mean, perhaps hundreds of years of servitude had taken away their confidence, but perhaps also They were people accustomed to hoping for no more in their present situation than what they saw and weren't accustomed to trusting God for their future. See, our passage says, when they would see war, they'd want to go back to Egypt. That is, Israel didn't view themselves as a nation nor as a people with a holy destiny. They weren't thinking about the promises made to Abraham and to his descendants, that theirs was the land They weren't saying, who can stop the promises of God? Shall hardship or danger or nakedness or the sword separate us from the love of God? See, instead of saying those words of faith, they would have rather gone back in slavery rather than to fight a foe that seemed stronger than they were. They weren't yet ready to believe the promises very well. Knowing that's who they were, God is gracious. They will go in a different direction. He will allow them even more time to see the great and mighty hand of God. They're going to the wilderness. Now, as we know, this will lead them on that fateful encounter with Pharaoh at the Red Sea. So stop here because for our purposes, it's important to ask, where are they now? See, the Red Sea in Hebrew is called Suf, And a great many scholars translate that as Sea of Reeds. They say it means that it refers to a body of water where there would have been reeds or papyrus growing alongside of it. And they argue that the Red Sea doesn't have that, and so they argue it must refer to either the bitter lakes or the marshy lakes north of the Red Sea. They argue, therefore, that the Red Sea crossing is really a crossing of the Sea of Reeds and that it happened in lakes that were really not that deep at all. You might even find a Bible map that way in your own study Bible that traces the crossing in the actual Sea of Reeds. What do we make of that? Well, we might consider how the words yamsuf are used later in the Bible. I'm reading 1 Kings 9.26, and it says, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion geber which is near Eloth, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Even if you don't know your geography well, let me assure you that the land of Edom was nowhere near the Sea of Reeds in North Egypt. And for those of you who have a sense of geography of that region, the term Yam Suf refers here to the second finger of, yes, the Red Sea that comes up on the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula. And furthermore, you can't sail a fleet of ships on a sea of reeds of that, I can assure you. And for that and many other reasons, it's always best to translate Yam Suf, yeah, as Red Sea. Even while there's been a vigorous debate as to exact location of the Red Sea crossing, I have my own views on that, but one thing is certain. Israel crossed the Red Sea, not the Sea of Reeds. In fact, if we go to verse 18, that the Lord led them by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, we have to imagine that they're already now in the desert and they're being hemmed in. That is, the Red Sea is now blocking any opportunity to move forward. So we continue to read Exodus Thirteen, verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones with you from here. Now, that's an important text because it reminds us of the continuity between Genesis and Exodus. And Joseph, as you'll remember, was the one who was referred to at the beginning of the book of Exodus. The book begins by telling us that Joseph died along with that whole generation, and then there rose a king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. When Joseph died, according to the book of Genesis in chapter 50, verses 24 and 25, Joseph expressed his confidence in God. He said, God will visit you in the future. He's going to bring you out of the land of Egypt. And so he said, carry my bones with you because I belong to the promised land. That was Joseph's faith. A faith in an event that according to normal means of reckoning would never happen. But Hebrews 11, verse 22 says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And that's it. It's faith, faith that my people don't belong in Egypt. They belong in the promised land. And I, Joseph, belong in the promised land with them. Now, you might say, well, what benefit did Joseph have when his bones were brought to the promised land? But here I think Hebrews 11, 14 to 16 helps us. It says, for people who speak thus, make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, there would have been opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. That's the story of faith. It's the story of people who aren't satisfied with Egypt, the land where they now live. But they look to Canaan, the eternal land that awaits them. And as we read to the end of Exodus chapter 13, I'm reading verses 20 to 22. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etam on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. We don't know with certainty where Sukkoth and Etam were. It's either at the western side of the two fingers that make up the Dead Sea, or it's in the wilderness of Sinai on the western side or on the eastern finger of the Dead Sea. But wherever they were, God was guiding them. It's in the daytime there's a pillar or there's a column of cloud, and then at night the column of cloud becomes a column of fire. God's leading them day and night, indicating his presence. And what the people didn't know is that god was leading them to a dead end a place where there was no place to run as the egyptian army would bear down on them and at a time like that they would be faced with a decision the decision would be shall we now panic and blame god or shall we trust him entirely don't you know that's the choice that you and i make every single day shall we live the life of doubt Or shall we live the life of faith?
0: Thanks for your message, John. Uh, Let me ask you this. What does it really mean to base our faith on things unseen?
1: Well, the only thing that we base our faith on are always the things that are unseen. I mean, no one has seen God. We base our faith on God. Um, um you know, those of us who live today were certainly not there uh, when Christ was crucified and rose from the dead. And even if we had been there, um, there still is something unseen, isn't there? And that unseen element is that, you know, that through this act, um, forgiveness of sins is offered and the hope of eternal life is there. And then speaking about eternal life, we are offered uh, a life forever in the world to come in the eternity that God has prepared for us, that we have not yet seen. So if you look around and you look at the things that are seen and the things that people long uh, to gain in this world, I mean, the things seen will all pass away. Uh, But the things that are unseen, after the things seen pass away, the things that are unseen remain forever. So everyone's going to ask themselves, what am I going to live for? I'm going to live for the transient seen things or the unseen things that are yet to come that will never pass away.
0: Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, we rejoice to see what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada. We also offer thanks for the host of faithful supporters who pray, give, and encourage this Bible teaching ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is dependent upon God's supply through you. Your consistent generosity, first-time donation, or becoming a monthly partner enables this ministry to consistently and faithfully proclaim God's Word across Canada. Thank you for the important role you play in ministry. May your soul know the delight of God's release from sin, guilt, and burden. For more information, to receive your Freedom in Christ scripture calendar or to offer a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.